Today, my guest is Assistant Chief David Green with the San Bernardino Police Department. He has been with the department for 26 years and has been Assistant Chief for two. He started his career in law enforcement with the Orange County Sheriff's Department in 1992. We talk about the challenges of policing in California due to the impact of state initiatives around prison realignment, lessened penalties for certain crimes, and a recently enacted zero bail policy, mandates that are having a major impact on law enforcement and the community. Chief Green also discusses the horror of the 2015 terrorist attack on the San Bernardino community and its lasting impact. And as I always do, I asked him why he became a police officer and what the rewards have been. Chief, thank you for joining me. Good morning. About how large is your department? Uh, we are 269 sworn. Tell me a little bit about San Bernardino. Sure. Well, San Bernardino resides about 60 miles east of Los Angeles. The city of San Bernardino is the county seat for the county of San Bernardino, which is the largest geographic county in the United States. It's been a, a blue-collar town since its inception. The town was kind of anchored by the railroad industry as well as the uh, steel industry. It later became home to Norton Air Force Base. Those three industries anchored the city for uh, decades starting in the, the 1980s. And now the city is home to Cal State San Bernardino. It's, so it's a college town. We're also home to a lot of, of the logistics industry because we're kind of a, a hub city for distribution from the ports of Los Angeles and, and Long Beach. What is unique for you in policing there? What are the challenges? What are the upsides? I think that San Bernardino offers a, a very um, broad spectrum of exposure in law enforcement. You know, just as we're a hub city for the logistics industry, in the past we've been hubs for, you know, narcotic distribution coming up from Mexico. We share many of the uh, same crime dynamics as, as other big metropolitan cities in California. So from a law enforcement perspective, officers that work here get a very broad exposure to policing issues. And we're we're a big enough city that if you work for a department like ours, you're going to you're going to be exposed to just just about everything. Right now, my understanding is you're not really facing the defunding challenges that some other markets are facing. And correct. Tell me more about that. Our city has been financially challenged for for quite some time. We lost the steel industry here. We lost the Air Force Base. San Bernardino really started to suffer some economic decline. I believe it was around 2010, we had one of the largest municipal bankruptcy filings in the country. So as a result of those financial issues, the agency has downsized out of necessity, but not out of a political desire by the citizens to reduce the size of the police department or shift its resources away. It was more out, out of a matter of financial survival in general. The community is very supportive of its police department and, and generally supports increasing the police department to the extent that the city can afford it. We have had two tax measures pass over the years in support of the police department. You know, with each budget year, we were having to cut and cut and cut. You know, we got down to a low of, I think, uh, somewhere around the 240s. We are now uh, back into the 260s, pushing 270. 
sworn positions. Generally, the voters of San Bernardino are very supportive of law enforcement service. You know, there's always you know, debate about what law enforcement service should look like. But as far as having it in general, there has not been a push locally to defund the police department uh, or reduce law enforcement services. Well, that's good. Did you uh, experience civil unrest, riots, protests after George Floyd's murder? We did. We, we experienced one evening of, of very heavy rioting in the city, but it was transient. It was somewhat imported into the city. There was a, a circuit of instigators that were hitting different cities in Southern California on different evenings in late May, early June of this past year. You know, we made several of our arrests. The crimes that occurred that night, we pursued a lot of those investigations subsequent to that evening once the chaos had kind of subsided and we've made uh, dozens and dozens of arrests uh, around the looting. And uh, many of those suspects were from out of the area. And why would they come in to do that? I guess that happened in other markets as well. Opportunism, like I say, it was somewhat transitory. They hit us one evening. They hit the city of Riverside, which is one of our largest neighbors to the west. They hit Riverside uh, a night or two later. It just kind of moved around from city to city as the agitators were testing police response and, and trying to draw you know, attention to their, to their cause. Aside from riots and protests, what has been the impact of George Floyd's death on policing for your department? Um, I think that some of the issues that came out of George Floyd, a lot of those issues were things that California has already addressed. I do think that California uh, has been somewhat ahead of the rest of the nation as far as professionalization of, of policing, standardized training, dealing with problem officers, you know, evaluating tactics, um, focusing on de-escalation, things of that nature. A lot of policy changes that have been sought by the public following George Floyd were things that we were already doing. And do you have any examples? Well, I, I think uh, some of the examples that I would use would be disclosure of the review and investigative material. And for example, we had a, a bill just a few years ago, SB 1421, that mandates that certain incidents where great bodily injury is caused to a suspect by police, that we have to release those records uh, within a certain period of time after the incident. So just as far as daylight being brought on, uh, you know, on the investigative findings and our, you know, internal documents and that kind of thing, that California is already well ahead in that trend. At the same time, you have some challenges in California due to recent legislation. Yes, there's been a movement toward decriminalization in California. A few years back, there was a uh, assembly bill uh, 109, which it was partially driven by budgetary issues, but it was also driven by a desire to kind of change the, the penal system in the state. And it's called the prison realignment is what it was referred to as. What it did is it pushed much of the state prison population, which is generally the worst of your worst violators. Uh, it pushed that population down into the city jails. Prior to that, any prisoner that was committed for more than a year's time could not spend that time in county jail. A year or more sentence would automatically commit a suspect or an inmate to state prison. So Assembly Bill 109 changed that. It pushed much of that population into the county jails, which then that pushed much of the county jail population out onto the streets, um, which has had a, a, a very significant impact on our, on our homeless population. And then around that same period, there was also a voter 
initiated Proposition 47, which was a initiative to lessen the penalties for a lot of crimes in the state. For example, raising the dollar threshold for a misdemeanor theft versus a felony theft, et cetera. And so many of the statutes that we would typically use to arrest a criminal violator, take the, and actually remove them off the street, put them in county jail, a lot of those tools were taken away from law enforcement. So um, while those crimes still occur, uh, law enforcement has less tools available to actually remove the violators from the streets. So, you know, we, we find ourselves issuing citations or you know, summons to, uh, court summons to a far greater degree than we did before Prop 47. Going back for a minute to the Assembly Bill, prison population being moved into jails, and then why are they being let out of jail? Because there's only so much capacity in the county jails. So as the county jails are mandated by the state to keep those long-term commitments in the county jail with that. It, it basically precluded the county jails from making that transfer out of their population and into the state population. In order to accommodate for that, the county jails are not able to accept as, as much of the criminal population as they would have otherwise. Does COVID play a role in release as well? COVID has exacerbated that issue. Early this year, California enacted a zero bail policy. So we would make the arrest, we would take the suspect to the jail, get them booked in, and then they would immediately be released because they didn't have to post bail. And then go out and reoffend. And then go out and reoffend. yes. Uh, many agencies in, in Southern California have, have arrested the same suspects for misdemeanor and felony crimes multiple times in the same day. And we, we've, we find that Many of the suspects that we arrest for both nonviolent and violent crime are, are out within the same day, if not within the same week, and quickly reoffending because they're, they are adapting to the environment and recognizing that there are no real consequences for criminal behavior. So hence, there's no incentive to not engage in criminal behavior. So if I understand, letting people out of jail combined with Prop 47 and decriminalizing crimes essentially making some felonies a misdemeanor, then in some cases you can't even get charged for certain crimes? Correct. And another result of COVID is that many of the, uh, the, the courtrooms have been shut down. The courts are unable to conduct jury trials. So the prosecutor's offices are, are, are backed up processing the cases. So the volume of arrests has not gone down. The volume of of certain types of crimes has not diminished, but the justice system's ability to deal with and prosecute those cases has really ground to a halt in, in many instances. And so there are suspects that have been arrested and do have charges potentially pending against them, but you know, until there is capacity to prosecute and adjudicate their cases, they're just back out on the streets reoffending. How do you police in that environment? Well, it, it's tough. It doesn't stop what we do. We still respond to calls for service. We still engage in as much proactive enforcement as we're able to. It's just that we're shoveling sand against the tide, whereas uh, normally when we do solve a crime and make an arrest, which is typically what a police success looks like, we are still solving the crimes, we are still making the arrests, but taking the offenders off the streets is short-lived. 
ultimately the residents and business owners of the community are the ones that suffer the result. And what is the community's reaction? I think the community, and when I say community, both our local community and I think statewide is slowly starting to connect the dots. A lot of the underlying causes of uh, these greater challenges have have been voter-initiated or at least voter-supported. I mean, Prop 47 was passed by the voters. AB 109 was passed by politicians that the voters supported. So I think that initially, when crime goes up, residents tend to look to their police department and see it as a policing issue. But I think as time goes on, residents across the state are starting to connect the dots and recognize that it's not that policing has changed, it's not that law enforcement agencies are doing anything less or anything different, it's that we're one cog in the justice wheel and you know, as the other parts of the system uh, begin to break down, it makes us less effective in our role. It seems like this is happening in other markets, and sometimes it's at the state level and sometimes it's at the city level. Is that correct? Yes. And what makes for the difference? I think we're talking about two different issues here. So when you're looking at decriminalization, law enforcement agencies, at least in California, the, the laws that we enforce Um, And when you get down to the core of our our mission, we are a law enforcement agency. The laws that we enforce are state laws. Uh, If only a small percentage of the laws that we enforce are actually local municipal codes or ordinances. So a local government can change, can can impact uh, policy and impact enforcement Um, When it comes to those local ordinances, like I said, those ordinances are a very small percentage of what we enforce. And they generally are limited to infractions and misdemeanors. So all of the more serious crime that that we deal with as a law enforcement agency is regulated at the state level. I'm struggling to understand what the goal is. I mean, I certainly understand changes in laws as far as, let's say, low-level drug possession. But... What do they see as the purpose in broadly decriminalizing crime? You know, that, that's a tough question for me to answer because I don't follow the logic of it. I, I can tell you that when these things are discussed in political campaigns or they are promoted as voter initiatives, they always sound pleasant. It, it sounds like the you know society is trying to move from a, a very draconian type of of criminal justice system to one that is, is more fair and equitable and, and, and recognizes social ills versus criminal behavior. At the end of the day, the outcome is that more criminals are out on the streets, more people are being victimized. As a law enforcement officer, you kind of see and deal with the impacts on a firsthand basis. And so uh, I think that as law enforcement, we tend to look at these initiatives differently than voters who are not in the trenches dealing with the outcomes on a, on a day-to-day basis. I've read about instances where people are charged, let out, reoffend, but sometimes these are not just, you know, theft, these are murders. Sure, yeah. We, we, we arrested a suspect for murder just this past September, and the, the case didn't get filed. And uh, just a few months later, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, suspect was, again, involved in another murder. So um, these are serious crimes. We're not talking just about petty theft and, you know, small 
petty uh, drug use types of crimes. We're talking about violent crime. Another thing that I think voters don't tend to recognize is that violent offenders, people that commit the worst of the worst types of crimes, they also commit petty crimes as well. So as you diminish the sanctions for misdemeanor crimes, you take away law enforcement's tools to impact violent criminals. Drug use being a classic example. Violent offenders use narcotics. So in many cases where in the past we would arrest somebody for drug possession or drug sales, while that was the charging crime and that was the the mechanism by which we removed that person from the streets. That person was also a murderer. That person was also an armed robber. Drug use um, tends to be the common denominator. So when you take away those tools from law enforcement, again, that is a tool that we use to impact violent crime. Another phenomenon that I have noticed is that a lot of these initiatives are marketed to the public they are marketed in the sense that we're going to reduce the penalties for drug possession or drug sales or nonviolent crime is the kind of a buzzword that is used to promote these initiatives. So you may have somebody who has been a career violent criminal. They've got multiple armed robbery offenses, multiple assaults, murders in their background. They get out of prison, they go back to the streets, they continue to engage in criminal activity, they get arrested on a property crime or arrested on a drug crime, they get placed back into jail or prison. They are now branded as a nonviolent offender because the controlling charge that now has them incarcerated is a nonviolent offense. But they are still a career, a violent career criminal. So while uh, you know a, a voter that doesn't understand these dynamics would look at that logically and, and question why we are putting a nonviolent offender in, in jail uh, or prison for any significant period of time, they don't recognize the nexus between petty crime and violent crime, uh, and they don't understand the domino effect that marginalizing petty crimes and reducing their sanctions has on violent crime trends. I just interviewed a detective from San Diego who essentially said the same thing. He said you can steal a car and have a personal amount of meth on you, steal a wallet on your way out, and all three of those would be citations. Yes, yes, absolutely true. Uh, returning inmates to the community you mentioned is increasing your homeless population. It does, it does, because a lot of the folks that did make up the county jail population, they engage in low-level offenses, but at a chronic level. You know, they, they just, they are people that lack structure in their lives. They, they have difficulty functioning um, at a level, uh, you know, where they can be responsible, uh, manage manage housing, manage manage bills, manage employment, you know, the the, the responsibilities. Without the the discipline and and the capacity to manage those responsibilities, they end up on the street. And many of those people just have, uh, you know, have grown up in a in, in dysfunction. And there is a, a segment of that population that is mentally ill. And I think there's a lot of focus on the mentally ill component of that population. But what I think gets lost in that conversation as well is that much of the mental illness 
that drives homelessness is not genetic, but rather drug-induced mental illness. So again, as a, a consequence of turning a blind eye to, to drug use or trying to you know, marginalize the sanctions for drug use, we, we create a greater population of, of mentally ill persons um, that, that you know, deal with the drug-induced psychosis and you know, which brings them to a level where they, they just can't function in society. So they live on our streets um, and they survive either through you know, petty crime or, or begging or you know, whatever it is they have to do. With the goal of not keeping people incarcerated, it almost seems like in some ways more cruel. You're putting them out into the world with no structure. I think there's a very valid argument to be made that pushing these people out onto the streets is, is inhumane in, in many cases, in many instances. While putting people in jail does not intuitively sound like a humane thing to do, you have to keep in mind that while these people are in jail, not only are they getting a roof over their head and, and three nutritious meals a day, but more importantly, they're getting the mental health care that they need to not be self-destructive. And it's unfortunate that the best system we have for providing that care is our county jails, but until we find another system for providing that level of care and forcing these people to accept the care, which is the bigger challenge. Really, the county jail is the best solution for much of the homeless population. And I'm not saying that that applies to all of the, you know, I want to make that distinction. It doesn't apply to all of the homeless population. There are those true down and out scenarios out there. But I think that there is enough, uh, you know, more than adequate services out there for that segment of the homeless population to pick themselves up and, and get out of that situation. Much of the population that we are dealing with on a chronic level should be in county jail. It's almost like it's a good goal, but, but they haven't executed it effectively. They didn't have a, a backup. They didn't have a system in place. Good intentions, poor outcome. I, I mean, the, a lot of these initiatives are, are, are feel-good initiatives, but they don't have the, the outcomes that are intended when they're, you know, when they're either passed through legislation or through voter initiatives. As an assistant chief at your level, it must be painful for you to have to watch your department, your people on the streets having to deal with this. Sure, it is frustrating. You know, I send my, my folks out onto the street every day to, to shovel sand against the tide. And when we are not able to diminish crime to the extent that we would like to, frequently the, the frustration of residents and, and business owners is directed at law enforcement because they don't understand a lot of these other dynamics that we're discussing now. It's my staff that, that, that are the brunt of those frustrations firsthand when they show up on a call for service and you know, they've got citizens venting at them over the behavior of somebody that's causing their nuisance and they don't understand why that person hasn't already been dealt with or why after the person was dealt with the week prior, why the person is back out at their business or back out at their residence causing a continuous problem. They unleash that frustration and they, you know, they vent those frustrations at our staff and it does make a, it does make a more challenging work environment. And, you know, of course, that's what we've signed up for and we deal with it and try to provide our, our residents and business owners with you know, the best service that we can and, and explain the challenges that we're facing. But you, you have to understand, you know, at, at human level, these people are being victimized and um, they, they just want it fixed. They don't want to have to think about all the complexities behind it. They just want their problem solved. They want their quality of life to improve. 
Chief, I appreciate your insights on these current issues. I would be remiss in not asking you about the tragedy in your community. Your community is one of many in this country that experienced a mass shooting, a mass casualty event, in your case, a terrorist attack that happened in 2015. If you could please tell me about that incident and then tell me what that's like as a police officer, getting that call, having it dawn on you that this is serious. Sure. The incident involved a group of county health employees that were having an annual workplace meeting, kind of an employee recognition type of event. It took place in December, so it was also kind of a end of year type, Christmas type celebration by the employees. One of the employees was a gentleman by the name of Saeed Farouk. He had worked for the health department for a couple of years. He was a Muslim. He had been raised in the United States, but had become radicalized at some point in his life. He had also recently uh, married a woman from the Middle East who apparently was very radicalized. They had concocted this plot to go in and shoot up his co-workers on that day. They carried out that plan. He showed up to the meeting that morning. He excused himself from the meeting for a short period and then returned with his wife. They were masked up to where their identities you know, were not clearly evident. They re-entered the conference room with assault rifles and uh, took to shooting all the participants of that event. They, they killed 14 individuals, wounded 30 some odd. It was a very devastating attack. At the time it was deemed the second worst terrorist attack or second most significant terrorist attack on U.S. soil since 9-11. Unfortunately, subsequent to our event, you know, there's been other major tragedies that I think have surpassed the uh, casualty rate of ours. But it, it, it was a big deal. And in San Bernardino, we do have a steady amount of violent crime, so it's not uncommon for our officers to deal with violent crime, to deal with homicide and, and shooting type of scenes. Our officers are generally very adept at, at doing so, but this one this one certainly was at a level that nobody in this department had ever experienced. Just the scale of it was, was devastating, you know, in and of itself. It, it was just mass, a mass carnage event. So it, it, you know, it, was, it was devastating on multiple levels. How does the call come out? Or how did the call come out? The call came, the call came out as a shooting. And then you know, the, the first call was, was followed up by multiple subsequent calls of a, of a mass shooting event. Uh, the, uh, there were callers from nearby buildings, callers that were in other offices on the same campus that were hearing and witnessing it. We knew we had something big very early on. Did you have to respond, you personally have to respond to the scene? I, I did because the uh, event was so significant. It, you know, it quickly used up all of our resources in the department and, and we called for mutual aid. We had multiple agencies that were involved in responding to that. It wasn't just San Bernardino PD. I, I was actually off duty when the incident occurred, but I, I got a phone call and so I responded into work and I was assigned as a watch commander at the time. But because there was an on-duty watch commander, I actually went out to the scene to assist and um, and then ultimately ended up taking a command role when we located the, the suspects and apprehended them. I was involved in, in kind of managing that scene. And if I recall, they fled the scene? They committed the, uh, the attack, they escaped, and then we responded to the location and, and started trying to 
deal with the victims. But at the same time as we're dealing with the victims, there, you know, there's an investigation that's immediately ensuing to try to get the suspects identified, try to try to get them located. It was, you know, very chaotic as you can imagine. But we did develop some very early leads in that case with help from some citizens, help from some, you know, you know from some businesses, and we were able to get the suspects identified a possible location where they might reside and we had a, a surveillance team that went out to that scene and uh, located them and then followed them back into the city of San Bernardino and made an attempt to, to try to, to stop them, uh, take an enforcement action and that led to a pursuit which ultimately led to the, the shooting that, uh, that was witnessed on national television. You said already that you tend to have support of the community but I have to believe that brought the community together in a way that... It did. Very much so. Our community was was very uh, supportive at that time. I think one of the things that really brought our uh, brought the community behind us, but not just the community, but but the nation behind us, was that leading up to that event, there had been several terrorist attacks uh, around the world, uh, similar types of attacks, and in several of those, the attackers were on the loose for you know days if not weeks after the fact and and there had been criticisms of the law enforcement responses or military responses to those incidents in other parts of the world when this incident occurred we were able to identify and locate and uh, neutralize the, the the terrorists so quickly that it it really did I, I think we could sense that the country just felt like it had had some win, you know, subsequent to this tragedy that we, you know, we, that we had actually been able to strike back. You know, our agency, our staff was lauded nationally and internationally. And so I think that uh, where the community, you know, would have come out, our community would have come out and supported us regardless because we had all suffered, a, you know, tragedy together as a community. I think that because we had brought the, you know, such a quick and resolute conclusion to the incident, you know, just instilled a, a sense of pride, not just in, in the agency, but I think in the, in the community at large. You know, it was a small, small bright spot in a major tragedy, but it was, but it was something that brought us all together. And, uh, you know, we've, we've really tried to keep that sense of, of community, you know, both in the organization and, and, and outside the organization since then. You know, we, we really do, uh, we have great citizens in San Bernardino. They, they really do stand behind us and, and we really uh, do try to, to emphasize that, you know, the, the, the care and respect that we have for, for their challenges and needs and concerns. And, and so that was one small benefit that came out of that incident. But, you know, in the scheme of things, still, you know, a, a tremendous tragedy and one that, you know, will be a scar on the community for a long time. I'm sorry that all of you had to go through that. Thank you for sharing that story. I don't want to let you go without asking you, what made you become a police officer? You know, I became a police officer, I think, because I was drawn to the notion of uniform service. Growing up, I saw myself going in the military. Uh, I, had, I come from a family that's got you know, a long history of military service, um, going back to the revolution. My father fought in Vietnam. My grandfather fought in Korea in World War II. I kind of saw myself carrying on in that tradition, but uh, my father, when I was a kid, became a, a police officer, actually became a deputy sheriff. And, and as I got exposed to the profession through my father, my attraction to uniform service kind of shifted from the military to law enforcement. I saw it as a, an honorable uh, profession. I saw it as just something kind of 
prestigious to wear a uniform and, and serve in some capacity, and, and so I, I pursued it from a young age. I started out as an explorer scout and became a reserve, uh, and then a deputy sheriff, and then ultimately uh, a police officer here at uh, San Bernardino. And what have the rewards been? Award is one that's personal, it's emotional. Uh, there's just a sense of pride. Being part of a team like this, uh, you know, a, t a team that you view as very special. Being a part of a community, you play an important role in that community. You, you treat that responsibility with care and respect, try to do the best you can. But when you do achieve successes, you know, you feel that sense of pride. You get that reward in, in knowing that you, you did right by your organization or did right by your community. But equally, there's, you know, there's failures and hardships that go along the way. And it's, you know, it's a very up and down experience. But in its totality, I think it's a very rewarding profession. Are there any incidents or people in particular that stand out in your history? One thing you recognize when you come into law enforcement is whatever organization you join, it, it is a, it's a living, breathing entity that has operated without interruption since long before you got here. So you become a, you know, you become a piece of that organization's history. So, you know, where my department, you know, is well over a hundred years old, I think that as I look back on my career, I, I tend to focus on the people that I think made the biggest mark on the organization and for good or for bad, what I learned from, from those folks, you know, how that kind of influenced me to be the type of police officer that I was, type of investigator, supervisor, or in my case now, you know, type of manager. They influence and shape your decision-making, your, your perspective on things. You leave your mark and try to set the organization up for success so that, you know, long after you're gone and forgotten, your impacts are, are still felt in a positive way. Well, Chief, I know you're a busy man. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for having me.